Good morning again. Let's go ahead and begin uh, with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you have made a way so that our lives could be connected to Christ's life, so that his death is our death, his life is our life. And as we just sung a moment ago, the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. We are inadequate, and Christ is glorious. And we thank you that you gift your righteousness to all who will call upon your name so that we are righteous because we have Christ's righteousness. And so we thank you for this reality. Help us, Lord, to be a humble people. Help me to be humble. Help us to lean on your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Three weeks ago, we began a short sermon series, uh, kind of in between um, the book of Genesis and the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We'll start, Lord willing, soon. Three weeks ago, we started a short sermon series on the topic of persecution, and I just want to remind you uh, where we have been so far. We looked at a couple of things here, and this is the outline that we have been following. We looked at the definition of persecution. Uh, We looked at the compatibility of persecution with the call to the Christian, the fact that we should not be surprised or somehow come to the conclusion that, uh, that this is something that the Christian could never experience. We also looked at the undignified nature of persecution. And what we meant by that was really the word slander. We meant that we are going to be persecuted, but it's probably not going to be uh, announced that the reason is because we're Christians— There's going to be another reason announced. We're persecuting you because you hate people or something like that. And and it's going to be messy because it's like, I'm being misrepresented. Well, the misrepresentation is part of the persecution that we're going to experience. And today, uh, Lord willing, we're going to see here the divine purpose and intended blessing of persecution. And then next week, Lord willing... We'll finish out with instructions to the Christian on how to live through persecution. So we're going to say we've been doing a little bit of application along the way, but we're going to save the bulk of the application for the last message uh, in the series here. And so today we're going to see the divine purpose and intended blessing. Brief review, uh, in our first message, we saw that Jesus gave three categories of persecution in Matthew 5, verse 11. They were, you're persecuted when others revile you, you're persecuted when others persecute you, and you're persecuted when others falsely accuse you. So persecution, we said, does not always mean physical harm. It can encompass a larger variety of opposition. Um, The thing that all types of persecution have in common is that they happen to you because you're a Christian. Whether that's stated or not, it is because of your Christian faith. 
And then, of course, we saw that in Christianity 101, I mean, Jesus said at the very beginning, you're going to experience or, or, or you should deny yourself. There's going to be some kind of uh, difficulty. And that's Matthew 16 and verse 40, uh, 24. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And so Jesus says right out of the gate, you have to engage in self-denial, and there's going to be a cross to bear. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, we saw this as well. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. No, will be persecuted. There's no doubt here that this is going to happen. And again, Jesus gave us three categories, and, and this doesn't mean that we will all be persecuted in the same way. So there are countries right now where you could literally have your head cut off because you're a Christian. Probably, unless you become a missionary and go to one of those specific countries, probably most of us won't experience that kind of persecution. Uh, We don't know. Things could change here in this country. But whether you're going through that kind of persecution or whether it's mockery for your Christian faith, there is something that you're going to face as a Christian. This reality that we all will face it to some degree is the exact opposite of prosperity gospel preaching. So the Benny Hins and the Joel Osteens and the Kenneth Copelands and the Paula Whites of the world are preaching the exact opposite that the Bible is preaching. They say this, come to Christ and you will experience physical slash material prosperity. And the Bible says, come to Christ and you will experience physical opposition and suffering. But that doesn't sell very easily. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12 is a fascinating verse here. Uh, And Paul certainly did not uh, send this verse through his PR department before he wrote it. Come to Christ and suffer. That doesn't sell very well. Oddly enough, it does sell well in another sense. And the persecuted church in China is living proof that it sells well. They have grown in leaps and bounds amidst their persecution and put the church in China next to that good old American prosperity gospel preaching and there isn't even a comparison. The persecuted church is growing and growing and growing and quite frankly the the church and and I'm I'm using the church very broad right now the church in America is, is dwindling We saw in our message on the undignified nature of persecution that the world would persecute us, but they would say it was for another reason. And we said we could look no further than John MacArthur and James Coates. And actually, we have new breaking news about James Coates and his church. And some of you may have seen that the the government uh, has now put a fence around his church. So they let him out of jail 
but now there is literally a fence all the way around his church to prevent anyone from coming in and worshiping. This continues to go on in the world today. I read to you, and I'm going to read to you a shortened version of this, but I read to you in that message a quote from Paul Washer who said, We will be called things that we're not and persecuted, not for being followers of Christ, but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which, of course, is love and tolerance. You'll go down as the greatest bigots and haters of mankind in history. Your suffering will not be noble, so your mind must be filled with the word of God when all people persecute you and turn on you. With that, we come to our topic today, and I want to look at two different topics, and that is this, the divine purpose of persecution and the intended blessing of persecution. So let's get right into it. When we ask the purpose question, we're asking the intention or the aim of a thing. What does persecution accomplish? Now, certainly we believe God is all-powerful. He is all-good. So, so really, the very fact that persecution exists, even if we don't know why it exists or what it means, it means that we know God has it using it for a specific purpose and that he's doing something good with it. We simply know that from our foundational theology about the character of God. And so we do want to draw this out a little bit more. First, we're going to look at the high view, and then we're going to look at the the more uh, uh, um, uh, grassroots-type view. So we're going to look at this 30,000 feet in the air. Two verses for this. Verse number one is Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God... Uh, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay? Without even knowing the particulars, without even knowing the specifics, without even knowing the details, we know that at least from this level, God is working it out for good. I might not know how. I might not know why. I might not know why I'm suffering in this way as opposed to this way. Not sure why the world is going in this direction instead of this direction. But at least on a high level, I know God is doing something good with us. Our second verse is one that um, is from the book of Genesis. And uh, maybe some of you have heard of Genesis 15, verse 20 before. Um, but this says this. You, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So just as in the case of Romans 8.28, Genesis 50.20 reminds us that God uses these bad things for good. So we might say it this way. God is sovereign even over sin. Nobody can sin in such a way as to straightjacket God, and God says, I'm trapped now. What am I going to do? God is sovereign over sin. He uses bad things for good, and so certainly we know that he uses persecution for our good. Now, those two verses give to us kind of the bigger picture, but let's kind of drill down a little bit and see what are some of the things in Scripture God has given to us uh, regarding the the purpose behind it. I'm going to give you one main purpose, and technically the second point of the message today could be considered the second purpose, but I'm going to kind of give them to you a little bit differently here. So the first purpose is simply this. God uses persecution 
for the growth of the church. God uses persecution for the growth of the church. Someone asked me the other day, uh, just out in town, uh, I had mentioned that I was preaching a sermon series on persecution, and he said something to the effect of, what, um, what about persecution is most harmful to the church? And I said, actually, I, I think persecution helps the church to grow. Um, I'm not saying we don't get uh, bruises along the way, but I am saying on the whole, God uses it for the growth of his church. I'm going to give to you five verses to support this conclusion. Five verses in the Bible that discuss this topic. Now, the first verse is a little bit more general, and it's not a direct application to the church, but the rest of them will be. But I'm just going to give to you this first verse as an idea for how God tends to operate in general, and that is from Exodus chapter 1 and verse 12. In Exodus verse one, in verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 12, um, we have God's people, Israel, in Egypt. And look at what happens the more that the Israelites were oppressed by the Egyptians. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So this is not the church, okay? But you have God working in such a way so that when his people are being opposed, they start to spread and to multiply and to grow. So that's the first passage, passage number one. Passage number two is Acts chapter eight after Stephen was martyred. He was stoned to death. And we see something interesting that happens. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. A persecution comes, okay? And they were all, what happened? Scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those, here's the key part, who were scattered went about complaining about their persecution. No, what does it say? They went about preaching the Word. They were evangelizing. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. I wanted to include that all the way up to there was much joy in that city. The gospel goes out. So what's the order? Persecution, scattering of the church, much joy. 
God uses persecution to scatter believers. And whether we're talking about the Tower of Babel or whether we're talking about the early church, God wants to scatter his people. And the reason for that is because the Lord wants to scatter the gospel. And as much as it pains me to say what I am about to say, I hope that many of you will leave this church. What is the Great Commission? Go. The Great Commission does not start with stay. It starts with go. When I say I hope many of you will leave, this is, I don't want you to leave, but I do want you to leave, but I don't know what to say. It's back and forth, okay? (laughs) I don't mean I want you to leave because there's some disgruntled or whatever or this or that. I want you to leave to go and to be pastors and missionaries and lay people in other countries, in church plants, in obscure corners, in remote places all over the world. We are called to go. We are six years old as a church. It is time to start sending and sending and sending and sending. We need to be a church-planting church. We are talking about the fact uh, and currently in process of supporting our first missionary, and of course that will come before the church as a vote at some point, but we're looking into that, and we are, uh, as a church, plant at a point where, unless things change, we're somewhat stable right now. We can begin to support others. And we need to be looking out there to spreading the gospel. Now, I understand and I realize that God has not called everybody to go. This is not a guilt trip message. This is just, where's God calling you? God calls some people to stay, and he calls some people to go. The phrase that was hammered into my mind when I was in my undergrad was simply this, go where the gospel isn't. Go where the gospel isn't. It it doesn't matter if the Lord has called you to be a pastor or a missionary or not, you can still go. Pastors and missionaries need committed, faithful church members that can help carry the load. And so you could work a regular job and go. But the Lord scatters his people. The third verse is also from Acts. This is Acts 11 and verse 19. And it says this, Now those who were 
scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Um, Now, of course, that's part of another story, and the gospel is for the Jews and Gentiles. But the point is that they went out preaching the word. Sometimes God uses persecution because his people would rather accumulate all in one place instead of spreading out over the world. And again, God has called some to stay. Sometimes the ones who should be going, the ones he's called to go, sometimes they need a little bit of a push out of the nest. Sometimes it's, it's hard to leave. Like a child blowing dandelion seeds across the yard. God uses persecution to blow his children all over the world for the sake of the gospel. Puritan Stephen Charnock said this. When Saul made havoc of the church and by that storm dispersed the Christians... They, like so many grains of corn scattered in several parts of a greater field, produced the greater harvest. As clouds scattered the winds, they rained down the gospel in several quarters. God spreads his word through his people. Paul recognized this in Philippians chapter 1. When Paul reflects on his own persecutions, he says that the persecutions have served their purpose, which was to advance the gospel. This is our fourth passage, Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You realize that Paul is saying that people now are bold to preach the gospel because I'm in jail. Paul is saying, this is good. The fifth passage is Matthew ten eighteen. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. What is the purpose of this persecution, this being dragged before governors and kings? It's for gospel opportunities. Therefore, the Christian needs to have a different mindset than we have here in America. Here is our default position. How can I get out of this persecution and suffering? Here's what that default position needs to change to. How can I, in this opposition and persecution and suffering, look for the gospel opportunities that God is leading me to? You are here to spread the gospel. The Lord has already assigned that task to us. We don't get to alter that task. In an article on persecution, uh, Tom Askell uh, relates his experience with a Chinese pastor and says this. The other experience involved meeting a pastor who spent 20 years in a communist prison 
because he refused to quit preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I met Samuel Lamb while visiting the church that gathered in his home in uh, Guangzhou, China. After two hours of worship in cramped conditions, our group of 10 American pastors was invited to talk with Pastor Lamb at length. I will never forget his response to one of our questions about persecution and the advance of the gospel. In America, he said, the church has experienced prosperity and is growing weaker. In China, the church has experienced persecution and growing stronger. Persecution is much better than prosperity. Thomas Watson would agree with his assessment because he said this, Adversity hath slain her thousand, but prosperity her ten thousand. We know this is true. Whether we confess this or not, we know that comfort has led to laziness. And this is, I would suggest, the primary purpose behind our persecution, to grow the church and to preach the word. And this brings us to our second point. And our second point is this, the intended blessing of persecution. We'll say it this way. God uses persecution for the growth of the believer. God uses persecution for your own personal, individual, spiritual growth in Christlikeness. One of the ways that persecution grows the believer is it does this. Persecution makes heaven sweeter to you. How many of you have ever gone through a trial of any sort and you thought to yourself, come quickly, Lord Jesus? How many of you went through a trial of any sort and even if it was just for a moment in that experience, Christ was a little bit sweeter to you? Is it a good thing when Christ is sweeter to you, then we will not be discouraged when we face things that make Christ sweeter to us. Again, uh, Stephen Charnock says this, Afflictions here cause the joys of heaven to appear more glorious in the eyes of glorified saints. The persecutions of the martyrs did but heighten their graces, set them to a place of rest, and enlarge their robes of glory. God many times saves his people by sufferings and brings them to the shore upon the planks of a broken ship and makes that which was the occasion of their loss to be a means of their safety. Jim Elliot, the famous missionary, to the Alka Indians who died for his faith. Of course, everyone knows this statement, right? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus makes the connection between heaven and persecution in Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12, when he says this. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven, or for your reward is great in heaven. See the connection there? Persecution and heaven, there's a link connected between them. Persecution is intended by God to be a blessing to the believer. Just consider some other passages. 1 Peter 4.14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You are blessed if you're insulted. Romans 8.18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's no comparison. Matthew 19 and verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And then we have 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 4 verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You see what's going on there? I'm, I'm being worn down on the outside. I'm being opposed. I'm being persecuted. I'm suffering. But on the inside, the Lord is, is cultivating my heart and my soul. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you know what Paul is calling a light momentary affliction? You know what you would call that? You know what I would call that? Like the absolute extreme harshest form of persecution that you could experience. And Paul is saying that's light. We have a bit of a perspective problem. If what Paul is saying is light, we're going through something ultra-light. It doesn't even compare. The affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Every rock that is thrown at you, figuratively speaking, increases your eternal weight of glory. Every insult increases it. Every lost job and every lost home and every time a Christian is martyred, that weight is increased. Your view towards persecution is a value judgment. You are saying... If you uh, have a skewed value system, you are saying that you value temporary rewards of this world more than you value the rewards of heaven. We don't have an eternal focus. We have a here and now focus. This does not mean, and let me just clarify something here. This does not mean that we go out and seek persecution, okay? The Lord is the one who gives this. The Lord is the one who dishes this out, so to speak. The Lord is the one who distributes this. This is his will. So it doesn't mean that we go out and seek persecution, but it does mean that we gladly accept the marching orders of our king. The Lord may not... The the Lord may yet... Uh, prevent this from coming to here in America to the degree that we see it elsewhere. 
And if so, we can rejoice in that. And if not, we rejoice in that. And in all things, we say, the Lord is my king. I will gladly take the marching orders that he has given to me. Your thoughts are too much for this world, and persecution weans you off of that delight and onto another more glorious delight. There's a better delight. And though it may be hard to see at times, God intends your suffering for your good. Persecution takes your thoughts away from the world and shifts them to heaven and eternity. Persecution refocuses your mind on evangelism instead of on building your earthly kingdom. Persecution forces you to part with your sins. Persecution is custom designed by God. Again, we've been here before but Matthew 10:18. Somewhere in here is Matthew 10, 18. Here we go. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Listen to that verse. You will be dragged before governors and kings. The word for. For my sake. And then the word to. Purpose, intent, design, to bear witness. John Piper comments on this verse and says this. Notice that the witness before governors and kings is not a mere result or consequence, but a design. You will be dragged before kings for a witness to them. God's design for reaching some governors and kings is the persecution of his people. Suffering was not just a consequence of the master's obedience and mission. It was the central strategy of his mission. You see that in the verse? God is doing this to do this. This is where we want to make sure that we are very precise and intentional with the language that we use. God does not simply or merely allow us to suffer passively. He ordains it and plans it for a purpose. This is the lesson from Genesis, is it not? Joseph's life, Genesis 50, 20. This was the whole point of that verse. The whole point of that verse was not that God was saying, things have gotten out of hand quickly. I better figure out what to do. Genesis 50.20 is telling us God planned this event in Joseph's life for the preservation of his people so that there would be a descendant born, so that the promise would be fulfilled, so that the Messiah would come, so that Jesus would save his people from his sins. It's designed. 
not only is this the lesson from Joseph's life, this is the lesson from the cross. God did not merely allow passively Jesus to suffer on the cross. God ordained it. God did not merely passively allow Judas to betray Jesus. God planned it. But remember that all of this plan is not for your ultimate harm, but for your good. Luke 6, 22 through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Rejoice. That's the command. That is the only logical response. Now, that sounded illogical, but it's logical. The world says, suffer, complain. God says, suffer, rejoice. We have a whole church history telling us to rejoice. I mean, look at church history. And we see example after example after example of martyr after martyr after martyr kissing the stake that they were about to be burned on, shouting encouragements while they were being burned to their family and church members to continue on for the sake of Christ. We have a whole church history telling us to rejoice, whether that is in Acts 5, verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were considered counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Or whether it's Jim Elliott telling us to value the things of heaven more than the things of the world. We have a whole group of Christians who've gone before us telling us this is good. They're giving us wisdom and strength to endure. So how... Do we land the plane today? Well, I have three points of application. Point of application number one is one word, go. Yes, God uses persecution to force us to go, but you don't have to wait for that to go. (laughs) If God's calling you to go, then go now. Spurgeon writes this. No, it's not up here. So I gave away the second point of application. I'll just read it. Spurgeon says this. Persecution has evidently aided the increase of the church by scattering abroad of earnest teachers. We are very apt to get hived, H-I-V-E-D, like a beehive, too many of us together. And our very love of one another renders it difficult to part and scatter us about. Persecution, therefore, is permitted to scatter the hive of the church into various swarms. And each of these swarms begins to make honey. 
Again, just to reiterate this, I know not everyone is called to go, but some are. I think every Christian needs to wrestle with this. Every Christian needs to wrestle with, has God called me to go? And I don't want any of you to go, but I do want you to go. <laughs> and you know, you know what I'm saying. You know the tension. It is the tension that we face in this world. That's point of applic- that's application number one. Number two, preach the word. If God uses the persecution to spread the gospel, why wait until persecution comes? And maybe some of you have grown lax in that area. Why does God need to stir up persecution for you to go? Go now and preach the word. Application number three is this. Value the eternal more than the temporal. Persecution teaches us to value heaven more and this world less. So dive into the word. Invest in people. And let this cause us to be those who find ourselves continuing to grow in our love for Christ and his word. Putting off the deeds of the flesh, loving heaven more, and pursuing people to the glory of God. And again, I know, I'm, I, I, I don't know how to do this any other way. It's heavy. Persecution is a heavy topic. And yet, what does our Lord, who gives to us our marching orders, tell us? Rejoice in it. This is a good thing. Because we have a tendency to value the wrong things. And our Lord is saying, you need to value the church. You need to value Christ. You need to value people and souls. And let me just make an exhortation here today. If you don't know Christ, repent and trust in him. There is no other way to reconcile the sin that has broken your relationship with God the Father but through Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I would be happy to spend the rest of my day preaching the gospel to you and encouraging you and being a blessing in any way that I can. Thank you, God, for today and for your mercies. We know that your mercy is more And we rejoice in knowing that you've called us not only to believe and to have faith in you, but you've called us to suffer. It doesn't always make sense to us, but we pray that you would help us to rejoice in that, to value the things of heaven more than the things of this world, to go out and share Christ with those around us. We pray in his name. Amen.